Hey, EDGMers, welcome back to the podcast. This week, you're going to love it. I chatted to Dr. Dan Pronk. Now, Dan has served in the Australian um, Special Operations Units, and he's toured Afghanistan four times with over 100 combat missions. Um, Dan was awarded a Distinguished Service Award um, for his conduct um, when he was in Afghanistan for his second tour in Afghanistan. Now, this episode, we're talking about military trauma, and Dan has seen it all, and you'll, he'll unpack a bit of that on this episode. However, I really want to point out that we do raise issues such as PTSD, um, trauma, and um, we do also raise issues such as loss um, and resilience. So I really wanted to sort of say that if you're not in that right headspace today, maybe today isn't the day to listen to this episode. And what I recommend is maybe just sort of putting it on pause and maybe going to another one of my episodes. However, um, if you're ready to crack in, remember you can stop the episode at any time if it's too much. Um, and let's crack into this episode. I just want to say thanks to Dan. It was an awesome episode and also awesome to catch um, somebody of such high caliber. I actually saw his photo on a magazine, saw it, messaged him on Instagram. Within 24 hours, he responded back. Um, you would have seen him on the TV show SAS. Um, and yeah, let's crack into the episode. You. to the EDGM podcast this week. I'm chatting to Dr. Dan Pronk. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Cheers, Ben. Great to be here, mate. Mate, I'm stoked to have you along. Um, and today we're chatting about military trauma. Um, and I was talking to you just before we started this recording, the way I sort of came across your name was I was looking through about some tourniquets uh, and then your face popped up with a nice mullet and some cool sunglasses. And someone said, that's Dan Pronk. And I thought, let's have a chat. I had a mullet at the time too. Um, and you're the man, man. It's always good to be drawn together a fellow mullet wearer. <laughs> Dude, one's filthy at the moment, actually. I've been told to get rid of it. Um, for the record, I'm not wearing a mullet any longer, just, just for <laughs> listeners that might be picturing that. <laughs> Dude, I know. I've, I've been told to get rid of one. I've got to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> now, dude, we're going to be talking about military trauma. Um, and people would have seen your name a little bit around lately. Um, they can find you anywhere. I've just picked up a book with your name on it, um, which we're going to talk about a bit later. Um, but Dan, what do you do, mate? What so at that? the moment, I am doing a variety of things. I'm a doctor by trade, a GP, so general practitioner by specialty. Did my medical schooling through an army scholarship. So that was my link into the, the military and served for about 14 years in total. Popped out of the military in 2014 and since then have done... I uh, did a Master of Business Administration and then did some uh, an associate fellowship with the College of Medical Administrators. So moved in a, a fairly different direction for a while into some medical management roles. So was a deputy med super at a, a little hospital up in regional Queensland, ran a state prison health service for a few years as the medical director. And uh, most recently, I, I do a variety of things. So medically, I uh, do some ED work back in ed and i do some surgical assisting and then do some other bits and pieces around presenting on resilience so doing workshops and and um, engagements on resilience and so I sort of fill my days with a, a variety of things at the moment yeah you're a busy man i've um checked your social media out i mean i even saw yesterday you were hanging with merrick <laughs> um which was... it's i've been really i mean it's a it's a 
really sort of um, privileged position I found myself in. I, I through a company that I'm involved with, uh, a good friend of mine like by the name of Jeremy Holder founded a company called TACMED Australia uh, some time ago. And he was an ex-Army Special Operations medic. I knew him as I was coming into Army Special Operations. He was headed out, but I, I overlapped with him. And, and uh, long story short, I, I uh, bought into TACMED when I got out of the Army. And so we, for the last few seasons of that SAS Australia TV show, have had the medical support contract for it. And, and so that's allowed this, this engagement with not only the, the TV world, which is quite an amazing space. I'd never had any behind-the-scenes insight into, you know, a TV show, which was yeah. incredible in itself. But it's also allowed me to, to meet all these amazing people that have come on the show and say, yeah, I've, I've um, struck up a bit of a friendship with with Merrick, he's an incredible, incredible human being yeah. and, and highly intelligent, highly resilient fella. And so, oh, yeah, it was good. I, I, was watch, I was watching him on that show and I was like, he's just not going to give up. Like he just, you know, he just would sit there and go, nah, nah, nah. And he's, you know, you just wouldn't picture that kind of person. Do you know what I mean? You would have had that preconceived yeah. idea of him. He came on the show, you're like, wow. Yep. He's not just a comedian. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of those shows. And you see it the same on on special unit selection courses, be it military or police, you, you see all the recruits line up at the start and you've got these preconceived ideas where we're all plumbed with these human biases mm. and you'll look at certain people and think, yep, they look like a special operator, they don't. And, and same with the SAS Australia thing. You look at it and you think that person's not going to last 12 hours and and it's great when you're wrong. You know, I love that. Yeah. I love that. The, the people like Merrick who just... And as you say, you, you reach a point in those courses where it's clear that a candidate is either going to die or finish. You know, I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're not they're not going to quit. They're just no. so mentally strengthened, and that's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. And um, it's we'll talk about your book a bit later because there's some cool things that you've written in your book, um, which we'll we'll touch on a bit later. Um, we're talking about military trauma. Um, yeah. And you're you're part of the um, special operations stuff, so you've done a lot of training, dude, um, in your time. Not only as a doctor, but also um, in the military and like that sort of stuff as well. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about military trauma. Um, and I guess what I wanted to run run through is we're going to run through, I guess, a few little scenarios and how you would sort of approach it, and then you'd, how you would manage it for some of the mm. out there. If that's cool with you, yeah, of course. Um, where, I guess in trauma, where have, where have you seen a lot of the trauma that you've been involved in personally? So Afghanistan, I ended up, as it played out, the period of my career when I was with the Army and particularly Army Special Operations was was uh, when Afghanistan was really, we were on high rotation. So I did four tours of Afghanistan and that was where I saw, uh, saw the, the bulk of my uh, military trauma experience. Mm. Um, and you, when it comes to sort of military trauma, we know obviously for people listening that it does bring up certain things. Um, so we're going to be mindful, you know, pressure, um, PTSD also is going to bring up, um, you know, a lot of friends as well that are involved in that. So we're going to we'll touch on those things a little bit later. Um, mm. For people out there, um, run me through how you approach trauma, Dan. So how you would approach, good example, you're, let's say Afghanistan, you're somewhere and you see a traumatic event. How did you approach it as a clinician? So there was, there's a, a fantastic 
structure that was created by US Special Operations Command in the fallout of that Black Hawk Down incident that uh, people might have seen that movie or be aware of it. It happened in Mogadishu in the mid-90s and US Special Operations contingent was doing some targeting, got got a couple of helicopters shot down and got stuck in the middle of, of the city, whole bunch of fighting throughout the night and and in the fallout of that they looked at the the people that were killed looked at what maybe could have been prevented and then started looking at at what do we need to do differently in the tactical space because up until then they were just using civilian paramedic protocols in a tactical environment and it became clear at that point that they weren't the most appropriate protocols and so that that was the genesis of a thing called TCCC tactical combat casualty care and it was all about applying medical interventions in a tactical context and so it's in terms of the approach it it breaks into different phases the first of which being care under fire and that is as it sounds when there's still an ongoing threat there's still a gunfight there's still maybe a blast has gone off and, and you haven't cleared for further blast and and it's very much like the 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 danger piece in your DRABC algorithms. This is about making sure you have control over the tactical situation before you race in and try and provide a medical intervention. And it's very down and dirty, uh, the tactical medicine. It is bare minimum life-saving interventions in in appropriate for the tactical context. And and so care under fire is the danger piece. It's controlling the tactical context. It's it, it would often mean that your medical intervention would need to be delayed because if you can't control, if, if there's a gunfight going on, then the last thing you want to do is, is race out into that, get shot yourself, and then you, you know, your medical assets also a casualty and yes. just compounds things. So controlling the tactical situation getting someone to a place of relative safety and then you start to move into this piece called tactical field care where you're not in the immediate line of fire but there's still a a, a tactical situation going on so I mean you can't spread your kit out and get everything out and lay it all out nicely it's it's minimum interventions it's it's your tourniquets it's basically stemming massive hemorrhage is is the mainstay of, of what you're trying to do at the point of injury Mm. Uh, maybe decompress the chest or something like that but you're certainly not doing high-end medical interventions it's minimum appropriate intervention to preserve life until you can get that casualty out of there so it's a it's it's very uh sort of safety focused if you like and and very down and dirty and Mm. very minimalist type interventions Mm. to preserve life I guess the, the first one, when you said trying to get out of the, you know, the, the fire fire or trying to get yourself into a safe position. I mean, that's got to be really hard um, with the noise and I, I'd imagine firearms going off. Um, you obviously trained a lot to, to compose yourself in those environments, Dan. Yeah, the, the training. And we spoke about this just briefly and, and, and mentioned a, a particular bloke that we were both uh, familiar with in a very, very accomplished um, cardiac and vascular surgeon up there in Sydney. Uh, but yeah, so we were, we were incredibly well-trained and I, I look back and, and realize the amount of effort and these, you know, these selfless people that, that spent, uh, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks investing in us before we would find ourselves at the pointy end in these situations and lots and lots of reality-based training, really high fidelity, realistic training, Yep. To, to program these responses 
uh, and be able to reproduce them under under stress. And and so yeah, certainly it, we we were lucky in that we had the, the the time budget, but most importantly, we had these experienced people who were willing to invest in us. So by the time, certainly by the time I found myself treating a real time combat casualty uh, in Afghanistan. I, it wasn't stressful for me. It was actually, if anything, it was underwhelming because the training had been so intensive with yep. these mass casualty situations, you know, trying to choose which one you deal with, you know, all these horrendous injury profiles in training. Yes. So by the time I, I treated my first combat casualty, which was a single you know, one gunshot wound through and through, it was, it was like, is that it? You know, it's yeah. same, which was just... <laughs> Yeah, sounds a bit odd, but it was it was really how I felt. I'm like, oh, I was kind of, you know, oddly hoping for more, but yeah, but, um, yeah I, it was just a function of the training. Yeah, I guess that shows the benefit of simulation, especially in your field of expertise. You know, the higher well, the better it is. I think in all of our, yes, absolutely. And and this, I mean, the the combat environment's very very stimulating one but i think it's no more stimulating than a very busy resus bay yep. you know when you've got a, a lot of people coming in and out you've got a casualty that's that's in bad shape you've got machines and alarms and people trying to get in lines and tubes and and whatever else it's it's no different it's about just trying to focus in that highly dynamic highly stimulating environment and and focus on your sequence and and yeah it's um so i, I think whether it's you know, pre-hospital type stuff, hospital type stuff, or whatever your environment may be, exactly as you said, the more you train for that, the better you're going to be on the day. Yeah. Quick question for my naivety. Like, um, you know, you're a, you know, you're a doctor by trade and then you're mm. going into these high-end environments. You're almost like a, it sounds really weird, like a prized egg. Like people don't want to, they don't want you shot because you're mm. important to them, but also you can make a mistake really easily by your own accord that can really get yourself into trouble you know turn down the wrong street open the wrong door like there's so many variables out there where you could have ended up being on the other end of it um it, it was i mean it was a very it was a very dynamic environment the the and i was the medical assets were one of many uh, specialist assets that would move forward with a, a special operations element so we weren't unique in that regard there was other people you, you had your like your operators or your shooters if you like the people whose primary role was was to to achieve the the military mission yep. and you, you very deliberately stack it so that those blokes would be the ones at the pointy end uh, yeah. when at all possible but yeah i mean it's the reality was as you said it was complex environments that turned chaotic pretty quickly sometimes and and so you would have to on occasion sort of alternate between a, a, a soldiering role which you were there to do and then a, a medical role yeah that's that's crazy um so we talked about um getting yourself when you said trying to find yourself shelter you know let's say you've got a a, a fellow colleague who's been shot uh, id's gone off or something's happened um are you just sheltering behind you know just walls you know tell me how you've sheltered or got into yourself into a position that was safety yeah, often we so often the targeting we do in a place like Afghanistan would would be in the mud brick sort of villages and compounds and and so what you'd often try and do is is just drag that casualty back behind a, either a mud brick wall or back into the the last compound that you came past so one of these little mud brick sort of mm. homes 
often by the time a gunfight had broken out, the all the civilians had moved out of the village. Yep. So yeah, you but but basically just trying to get some form of cover, something that'll stop a bullet and get you out of the direct line of fire uh, from the enemy to be able to start doing your your first line really basic interventions, which was uh, the priority was on hemorrhage control. Yeah. And what did you carry with you, Dan? What in your pack? Like, what are some of the things you would have had with you as a clinician? So the the it was based around the we used to use the algorithm march. So yep. your massive hemorrhage, airway, respirations, uh, then coming back around to your circulation and your, your your head injury, hypothermia, your H's. So the it we try and stack our kit in that priority what are you going to need straight away and so every one of us had an arterial tourniquet at least one in a standardized position on our body armor so ev everyone had that there knew how to use it because that was the priority if someone had an arterial injury if they stepped on an ied and had a, a traumatic amputation or a gunshot wound through a femoral artery or what what have you so the the arterial tourniquet was front and center on everyone's uh, body armor yeah. i would then carry a, a whole bunch of, of things like your, your pressure dressings the hemostatic gauzes so the quick clots those fancy bandages that speed up clotting yeah. uh, so i'd have a bunch of tourniquets bunch of massive hemorrhage control stuff in my pockets and on my body armor I'd have needles for decompression once again uh, in my body armor. And so I'd try and prioritize my kit with regard to what's going to kill a person the quickest. And, yeah. and the reality with uh, combat trauma is the it's, it's massive hemorrhage is the number one by a long shot. So, so bleeding from a compressible bleed, be yeah. it something you can get an arterial tourniquet above if it's a limb bleed or a junctional bleed that you can pack with uh, with your hemostatics and your pressure dressings the and then next in line was tension pneumothorax and so so decompression needles as the as the temporizing measure and then when you've got a chance you'd, you'd either uh, you know stick a finger or a tube in in their chest but the the decompression was the the life-saving intervention in the field and then from there, I'd normally, my combat load was normally about 40 or 50 kilos. So it was a fair old load. Yeah, talk about uh, it. Yeah, well, I mean, you had to carry all your, your combat loads. So all your normal military type stuff, you've got your ballistic plates, your Kevlar, and you've got your, your weapon systems, you've got all your spare ammunition and, and all that sort of business that you needed for your soldiering job. And then we had to carry our, um, our medical kit on top of that. And so... It'd be kind of heavy. Most of the time, we'd, and in, in your pack, you'd have the, the standard sort of stuff. We we would lean more towards intraosseous than um, sort of standard cannulation. And so it was, our algorithms were, were somewhat simplified uh, in terms of if you needed access, often it was, it was IO as opposed to IV. Um, we had pretty low thresholds to do surgical airways. Yeah. And that was just a function of, of uh, intubation being a, a really perishable skill and quite complex and, and requiring, uh, you know, white light and, and all sorts yeah. of bits and pieces and, and just inappropriate in the, in the context. So oftentimes our airway algorithm would go from a nasopharyngeal airway to a surgical airway, which sounds just, you know, completely ridiculous to like most a, people out there. Like a crock dam. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Yeah. Yeah, so the 
uh, you know, we'd have surgical airway kits. We'd we'd have not not heaps and heaps of fluid. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. would, when at all possible, we'd carry blood with us yeah. to be able to transfuse. And if we could keep it cold uh, on our missions, we'd so we'd have some blood. Uh, and and then it was in, in the kit. I mean, you needed some of your primary healthcare type stuff as well. You needed your you know your Panadol and your antihistamines and your mm-hmm. antidiarrheals and all all of that sort of stuff and your band-aids and and whatever else so you you needed a a primary healthcare uh, kit but it was very very trauma focused wow i just it just sorry just blew my mind then when you're talking about the surgical airways like you imagine in the hospital it's such a absolute nightmare when a surgical airway comes up in terms of just the fear related to it let alone in the field um Mm. moving towards the surgical airway you know we drill it in the hospital but it'd just be crazy um doing that on the scene um, I think a lot of these things, and I think intraosseous is another thing that's got this this uh, aura and maybe a bit of a stigma surrounding it as this uh-huh. intervention of last resort. And and having having done a bunch of it in, yeah. in that context, you start to realise, wow, this is you know done done appropriately and done with the right techniques it's it's very safe procedure and it, it just gives you that immediate access you know it's a 15 second job to establish access and get some blood running yeah. uh, whereas trying to cannulate i think most people listening particularly when your blood's up and things are going and you you know your adrenaline's pumping your heart rate's 120 your hands are a bit shaky yeah uh, and, and yeah so it's um io was an absolute godsend but same with the surgical airway it's once you move past that that mindset of, of you know holy dooly i'm about to cut someone's throat it's it's actually a, a, a well dare you know, dare i say it a relatively simple procedure in my opinion compared to trying to maintain a, a um, intubation skill set yeah wow um with io dan just a quick one um are you generally if they're obviously just hitting it um tib and humerus or are you putting it in anywhere else uh, no, tib and humerus. Yeah, so you, you'd, you'd um, oftentimes, sadly, we'd be we'd be responding to people who stepped on improvised explosive devices, and and so they would often lose both their lower legs, and yeah. and then you'd go the the um, proximal humerus. Yeah. But yeah, t- proximal tibia was the other site that we'd use routinely. Yeah, and I I, I love it. I O like I think sometimes it's underutilized for sure in a hospital where people are missing it, and you're like, dude, this is your fourth attempt at a cannula. This dude's like not looking good you know you bang it in and you can find yourself with a great rescue device that that people i think have this you know by barbaric sort of view of it you know but it does work even in kids too um i've used it especially in kids yeah especially in kids and and like you say it and it's certainly when you're in the moment and i've been there and you you're focused on getting this intravenous access in the hospital and like you say you can burn 10 15 minutes and have four or five failed attempts and but i think that it is just a mindset shift of let's just get the IO in and, and fill them up with fluids and then their veins will puff back up again and then you can get the drip in and pull the IO out. But, yep. yeah, I, I think you're right. It is just this this mindset. Yeah. Um, and talking about, you sort of, um, you were talking about blood products. Um, you're mainly just carrying full blood with you when you're um, working? Uh, packed red cells. Yeah, oh. not full blood. Sorry, sorry packed red cells, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, I mean, there's there there are all sorts of brilliant massive transfusion protocols that they would use at the hospitals 
that yep. I could never quite keep track of, if I'm being honest. But, wow. but if we got the person back to one of the trauma facilities, then there was the, the clever doctors and nurses that could fine tune mm. all of that. But yeah, we'd just take a couple of units of Paxels and, and they'd have them on the aeromedical evacuation helicopters as well. So when, uh, when blokes got hit, you could, you could start that pre-hospital transfusion very quickly yep. if required, and then they could continue it on the bird. And so by the time they got to a, a Ford surgical team or a, a destination medical facility in a place like Afghanistan, they could have two or three, four units of blood already on board. Just a quick one, in terms of drugs, what would you be carrying with you, like, um, you know, analgesic effects like morphine, ketamine, fentanyl? Yeah, so we, uh, early in my career, so the first time I went to Afghanistan, we were still using uh, morphine auto-injectors. So everyone carried one of them. It was a 10, 10 milligrams of morphine. As that went along, we went across two uh, fentanyl lollipops, the yeah. fentpop. And but yes, we we would carry uh, ketamine as well, which was a a good one with regards to with people who were shocked, not not dipping blood pressure and and um, yeah, blood pressure particularly as much as some of the other opioid analgesics. But also had some interesting uh, because of its dissociative uh, dissociative nature, interesting effects on people not having as many traumatic memories from an experience and so there was yeah there was a, a role for for ketamine from a, a physical but also a, a psych, psychiatric or psychological perspective uh, in those traumatic experiences and that so yeah that were the mainstays really was either the the um fent pops and and maybe a little bit of ketamine the you'd carry antibiotics intravenous antibiotics the, all the wounds be it blast or gunshot were always quite contaminated so you'd want to get antibiotics on board as, as quickly as you could and and then you your usual resus drugs uh, you know your adrenalines and bits and pieces although sadly the reality was if if someone has arrested pre-hospital following particularly penetrating trauma, the, the survivability was was pretty much zero, sadly. So low, yeah, and which is so sad. Um, but it just shows you like those other algorithms like your yeah, hemorrhage control just being so important in those algorithms. Well, yeah, it all boiled down to that. And that was the, the focus. And, and you could break a combat casualty into three groups. They'd, they'd be the ones that were were going to die no matter what. And that was just that the harsh reality, either people were were killed instantly or they were the wounds were unsurvivable uh, and then you'd get the others that were were hit but you know they were going to live their, their, their wounds weren't life-threatening and the in-between were the uh, the compressible bleeds so the big arterial bleeds from something you could get to and then that's your arterial tourniquets as I said earlier and your junctional wound packing so something you can intervene with not a, a intra-abdominal intra-thoracic the ones where you you know non-compressible they need surgeons but um the and the tension pneumo and basic airway maneuvers I mean the our ability to intervene meaningfully to save a life really got distilled down and it was it was very very in a way very basic uh, in terms of you know we weren't fine-tuning arterial blood gases in the field yeah. or yeah. Look, yeah, looking for some fine detail on an MRI scan this, yeah. this was sort of big muscle movements you know just but the 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 thing was doing the appropriate intervention for the tactical context yes. but doing it quickly as well so and the big one there was trying to keep as much blood in the casualty as you could yeah I, li I like how you said about ketamine too um 
you know, I've seen people, um, you know, use ketamine, even that disassociative effect. I imagine a lot of these casualties could have, you know, you got an arm blown off. That's so traumatic. They're screaming on the ground with an arm off and a bit of that ketamine tourniquet on could disassociate them enough to sort of help them with the pain, but also help them not remember how traumatic that was. Um, such yeah, a good yeah, yeah. yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great drug and it's good to see it more and more routinely used in the civilian context as well and pushing out to the, the pre-hospital providers in, into their protocols. I, I think it's great. Yeah, ambulance are using it a lot more, which I'm so um, so pumped about. Um, yeah, so and um, just quickly, you talked about um, hypothermia. We know, you know, that triad of death, uh, you know, the lethal triad, we know that keeping our patient cold is bad. Um, you know, Afghanistan being, a, how did you keep your patients? Were you generally doing this stuff in daytime or was there nighttime sort of, um, you know, times when you would have to be, you know, fighting at night? Yeah, most of our missions were night time so we we would do it that way very deliberately because we had a bit of an advantage when it came to night fighting we had superior night fighting uh, systems than than the the uh, taliban and and so yeah it was a lot of nighttime raids sometimes we'd get forced like you you would need to turn up at a particular time to to um, achieve your mission, and so we there was day in among there, but yeah, we alternated day and night, and for preference, we would we would launch at night. Wow, so it's just interesting, like just being able to, you know, we do so much things with lights, and and you know, trying to do things with with light, doing it without would have just been such a harder, um, you know, complexity added to that situation. And and that drove the simplification of the like coming back to intraosseous because we would operate on night vision goggles and oh, yeah, that yeah. gives you a pretty um, I mean the, the technology is fantastic but but still they have a focal length and trying to draw that focal length into to concentrating on something very close to you when you're treating a casualty can be a bit difficult and and then alternating trying to keep situational awareness on the tactical context looking up regularly and trying to get get the information from around you and then back to your casualty so it it all led to this requirement to uh, and exactly as you said not not being able to use white light a lot of the time and uh, either in the field obviously that makes you a huge target if you start lighting up things you're going to get shot at for certain or in the, the backs of helicopters at night, you can't just crack out the white light because the pilots are flying on night vision and, and white light uh, sort of whites out night vision. It's too much light and the, the um, night vision goggles don't respond well to it. They flare out. Mm. So yeah, there, there was all these complexities that just further drove our algorithms to, to simplify them. Just really sort of simple stuff you can do in, in really complex system, uh, complex environments. And when your blood's up, when the tactical system situations sort of surrounding you and when you, you're on night vision. Mm. Um, you mentioned something in one of the, I've read an article that you wrote uh, and it said that you don't leave any rounds in the magazine. Um, what did you mean by that? I guess, like I thought about pressure and being put under pressure. And um, I thought about all the pressure, like the pressurized situations you would have been involved in, not only now in the clinical context, but still what you've done in military trauma. Um, you know, I guess, tell us about a time when you're under immense pressure. And yeah, I guess that, that, that it's a bit of a metaphor that don't leave any rounds in the magazine. And, and I used it in, in that context, just talking about, 
you know, give everything your best and, and don't leave any stone unturned. You know, these sort of things is a, is a bit of my my life philosophy, give everything a really good okay. shot. And, and the military metaphor there is fire every last bullet in your gun and then sort of work out work out what to do from there once, you, once your gun's empty, if, you, if you're still in trouble. But, but uh, the, yeah, look, I, I think the... With regards to the the pressure piece, there's, as I mentioned earlier, I, I never really felt the pressure of the combat casualty scenarios at the time, and and I think that was simply a byproduct of of that amazing training that we had instilled in us. And by the time I found myself in those situations, they didn't seem that overwhelming. I, I thankfully had this skill set plumbed into me almost on muscle memory mm -hmm. that I could use in those situations. And but I guess the time when when I had a whole bunch of, of pressure was was when I transitioned out of the military. And that was a that was a really rocky road for me the first couple of years, even few years after I left the military, uh, which which was quite odd, but with hindsight, it was a mainly a loss of identity. I think it was this: I was so invested in that military identity that when I moved out, I, I lost that. I lost my sense of purpose. I, I sort of had to find my feet again and work out who I was as a, a civilian. And it was at that point that I was I, I started to have a bit of the stuff from my military career that that hadn't sort of psychologically bothered me tremendously at the time catch up with me, and it just seemed this weird paradox that I was never safer never home more with my family I was earning more money as a civilian doc than I was in the military but I was doing worse from a, a mental health perspective and and so yeah I guess that was probably in terms of pressure when I when I felt most pressured mm. which is interesting hey like it's um you know you kind of think it would be the other way around um when you think of it I guess for me I think of it and think oh surely it would have been when you're there um, but forgetting about the, you know, like for me, the culture shock, you know, when I've traveled through Africa and saw poverty, it wasn't until I got back home that I was like, oh, I can't even eat normally. I can't, I can't sleep on that bed. You know, like I get a bit, it was when I came back, I got that, which was interesting. Yeah, it changes um, you. I think when you are in these environments, they are really quite supportive, you know, and, and when you're in there and, and particularly when you've got a job to do, you, you get on and you do it and, and there's these forces that that bolster you and the people around you pushing in the same direction and and this this was the genesis of my my deep interest in resilience was after I got out of the military and sort of started to to have a have a worse time I looked back and I thought well what what was that force that was bolstering all of us mm. in those environments that allowed us to continue to function and do what we did despite the pressures of it and and it was unpicking all of that that started to, to lead towards the, the resilience piece. But certainly that loss of identity, and I think that's an important one for, for all of us as a, as a nurse, as a doc, as an ambo, as a, you know, insert profession here that's highly invested, particularly first response type uh, professions, yep. which, which I tend to include emergency, you know, department, uh, medicine, nursing, 
as that. It's it, it can be a big part of our identity, and that's great. We want to be invested in our role. But equally, I think we need to know who we are when we take the uniform off or we take the you know stethoscope from around our neck. You, you need to have an identity that that is separate to your your role, your work identity. And I think it's easy to blur those. Yep. And I certainly did. I was identity fused. I didn't know who I was mm. uh, outside of being a doctor in the army. And, and that, that, that became a big problem when, when I left the army. Was that a coping mechanism, do you think, Dan? Or do you think that's something that you had been taught by looking at other people? Um, I think it just happened. Mm. It happened pretty organically. Like the, I, I loved the environment. I wanted to work with special operations for, for since pretty much the beginning of my medical schooling. I'd seen what it was all about. My brother had gone into the SAS regiment, and and I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And and yeah. so I'd been focused on this goal for for the longest time, and and that provided great motivation. Uh, you know, training up, and 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 then the first chance that I got when I was very junior army doctor, I, I um, they let me go and do the uh, SAS selection course, and so did that, got through, and and that led into special operations. So, it, this identity I had been sort of working towards it for for six seven years, and then you know got into that that world, and and so I think it it just slowly and very organically happened over time that that. I became this person, uh, you know, I, I adopted this identity. I didn't really realize it was happening or that yeah. it was pulling me away from, from anything else. And, and I, I felt that was the level of investment that the job required at the time was, was all in, you know? Yeah. And, you, you can't uh, half do it. Eh? No, I didn't feel so. I mean, I, I look back and I think, well, maybe I could have done things better and, and kept a foot in both camps with regards to maintaining some interests outside of the army, relationships with people that weren't military and, yeah. and these sort of things. But, but um, yeah, I never thought to do that at the time. And, and yeah. It, yeah it, um, it, I, I, I'm reading, I read, I started to read your book and it's absolutely amazing. Um, one of the things that really caught me, um, you sort of, openly sort of talk about a bit of PTSD. Um, and I think when mm. we've seen traumatic events, I mean, we recently had a pretty, two recently day after day cases of two little um, kids that came in and that was pretty traumatic. And I, I know that the um, army would also see so much more, um, but I guess it's something that shouldn't be stuffed under the rug. Um, and when I read through your book as well, I read about this analogy where you were sort of talking about um, carpet, you know, looking through and then seeing all these amazing carpets but then when you flip them on the other side, um, you know, they were all intertwined and it wasn't perfect. But when you flipped it back the other way, it was all perfect and nice. And sometimes how we can, you know, in a sense, show that part of ourself. Um, I don't know. That's what I took out of that. Just my own personal reflections. Um, what do you sort of, yeah, I guess that elephant in the room, PTSD, what would you say in relation to that sort of stuff, Dan? Yeah, look, I've got a fair bit to say on that topic. And I think we... Uh, I think there's a lot of things as first responders and, and as I said, this, this culture that I, I, I look at as, as your military, your police, your AMBOs, your ED workers, mental health staff, these sort of these high stress environments that are exposed to a lot of trauma, either directly they're seeing it or vicariously, you know, prison officers fit this sort of definition in my mind as well that dealing with these damaged populations and and getting that secondary traumatic stress that vicarious trauma and I think we 
underestimate the amount of, of trauma that's coming in. And mm-hmm. I, I think particularly, you know, our AMBOs and, and our police are probably a good example here where you recalibrate to a new normal and this, there's this, this role expectation that somehow you're going to be okay dealing with this stuff day in, day out. And there's often not a great opportunity to uh, debrief or do an after action review or process things. You know, you just got to roll straight from one traumatic experience into another job. And so, you know, you might go, an ambulance officer might go to a, a kid that's drowned that they can't resuscitate. And, you know, these, these horribly traumatic experiences, uh, not just with that patient, but with the whole you know, everyone else who's around there, the parents yeah. and, and whatever else. And, and then the, they'll, they'll bounce to a very next job, might be transferring an a, a, a elderly lady from a nursing home with a urinary tract infection or something. Yeah. You know, there's these sort of these massive highs and lows and ups and downs and, and this machine keeps churning. And I think what ends up happening is people recalibrate, uh, which is normal to these, these things that are very abnormal, you know, and, and your, your new level of normal becomes this these pretty constant trauma inputs that I think most of us don't recognize are affecting us until the wheels start coming off it, you know, it's an, and people use, and I like it, the, a bucket analogy, like a trauma bucket that you can fill and fill and fill. And, and it's not until it starts to overflow that you start to realize, hang on, that, that bucket's filling. So I think because we're in these cultures and environments where you look left and you look right and everyone around you is having the same experiences as you, you think, well, this is normal, you know? And it was like in, uh, in the military environment, you know, seeing, seeing and doing the stuff we were doing, that, that was the role over there and, and it was normalised. But with hindsight, it was very abnormal, the amount of exposures we were having to blast and high-velocity gunshot wounds to being in combat and, and responding to casualties in that context was very abnormal, but it seemed normal. And so what that allows you to do, and and then the more you train, the more you can function well in those high stress, high trauma environments, but that doesn't stop that, that those traumatic inputs. And, and if you don't know they're happening, or if you don't have any tools to be able to wind yourself back down and process that as you go, then uh, I think for most people, that's, that's gonna catch up with them and affect them at some stage. Mm, I like that, Aiden, and I, I read something even about burnout and it was saying um, you don't even realise you're borrowing from the day before. It was pretty cool. It's sort of saying that like you just keep borrowing from the next day and the next day then you get to the end of the month and you wonder why you're so absolutely burnt out and you've basically just been, you know, using the day before just to keep going and then you end up just getting to the end of your week and you absolutely wonder why, you, you know, you're it's a Sunday and you can't get out of bed. Um, but like no, it. yeah, it was cool. Um Dan, what was your biggest beatdown physically or emotionally and how did you cope? Yeah, look, that was the, the transition piece out of the military, uh, unquestionably. It was, it was that, that just, I think it was a, a whole bunch of things, but that underpinned by the loss of identity, the loss of purpose. I was, I was understimulated. I look back and I realised I was probably for, for that last five years of my army career with special operations where I was overseas a lot and doing a lot of other things, I was probably running on pure stress hormones for that <laughs> whole time. And I loved it because it felt good and it was stimulating yeah. and it was professionally rewarding. And But then, yeah, it, it was the ultimate example of what you were just saying. I was probably borrowing from the next year as opposed yeah. to the next day and, and then that all 
to to catch up with me and so it was that that wind back down which well it wasn't a wind down it was an abrupt stop it was kind of go 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 with with the military environment then discharge and then i had leave so i didn't even have a job to go to wow uh, well, I had about 10 months of leave, which I thought would be great, you know, but, but it, it drove me a bit batty. Yeah. And and then my first job back as a civilian doctor was on a mine site doing fly-in, fly-out stuff and wow. working with a great bunch of people and, you know, working with the mine site, emergency service officers, my, my um, fellow doctors were, were fantastic people, the nursing staff on site were excellent, but I was just just bored, you know. I mean, I was yeah. understimulated. I, I, I wasn't... Um, and I felt like a fish out of water. I still had this military identity and I'm trying to fit back into civilian life. And and so, yeah, for me, that was... And, and the, there's no question that there was some, I guess, a degree of ego uh, yep. thrown in. I'd, I'd come from this role where it held a, a bit of status within the army. And then, I, you know, I was just the new doc on the mine site and was plugged into this environment where I was the new guy and I needed to establish myself. But but my ego didn't love that to be honest and, and so so yeah that was a pretty that was a pretty miserable time to be honest but with hindsight it's like anything these these um these tough experiences you know force you to to adapt and evolve and, and that was that was what really got me thinking of you know what why is this happening why is this am i feeling so dreadful now when i'm earning a bunch of cash, I'm safe, I'm home with my family, all these positive factors on paper, things looked better than ever. Yes. In practice, I was doing worse than ever. And and that was, from a, for me, it, it, I needed to codify that. I needed to look at this from a physical and a psychological lens to say, you know, what was it that was bolstering us in the military that, that I've now lost and mm -hmm. how do I rebuild it? And that was the, the, the interest in resilience that led to the Resilience Shield project. Yeah. Dan, just quite interestingly enough, like I remember heading to America and I went to an NFL game and, you know, um, everyone stood up who's, who's part of the, um, the army or the you know, armed forces in America. And then I've just been in Australia um, and just sort of noticed, do you think that civilians in Australia realise what um, people in the military do? Um, you know, I, I don't know, it's a bit silly, but I always just sort of like, I have such a high respect for, people that have been in um, armed services and, you know, I just sort of go, I couldn't do that and I'm so grateful. But do you think that they do, Dan? Look, I think it's like anything. You, I don't think you can possibly perceive what, what anyone does in a role until you've done it yourself. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have a good understanding of what a, a busy accountant does or, you know, yeah. this, that or the other. And, and so I, I think we tend to fill in the blanks in our knowledge with, the perception of what we think that is and for the military i suspect that people who haven't had any insight into what that looks like yes. fill in the blanks using bloody call of duty and whatever military yeah. movie they've seen most recently so yeah, okay. I, I do think it's it is i, I feel it's a, a different kind of vibe to the us where they're yeah. they're very patriotic and yes. you know the thank you for your service and people wear their uniforms around and they get discounts yeah. At restaurants and whatever else, and I, I don't think we're we're at that level. But I, but I do feel that there's a that there is a 
a kind of communal respect towards the, the military. And, and so, yeah, I think people have that respect. I, I don't think they, most people have a good understanding, mm. uh, but that's, that's no fault of their own. It's just that, uh, like I said, I don't, I don't understand you, you know, what most other occupations do because I've never done them. And, yeah, that's uh, good. I like that, that view, Dan. Like it's a, yeah, you know what I mean? You could become like a bit jaded from that, but I like how you sort of can turn it to a positive. Yeah, I think the when I look at it, I I look at like our, our police and our uh, correctional officers, our ambulance officers, our emergency department staff, and and part of me, I think it's fantastic that veterans have this this platform, if you like, and this almost this understanding that they might be struggling a bit from a mental health perspective if they've if they've deployed and and had those experiences, but. I fear that we don't extend that same understanding to uh, emergency services and our emergency department yeah. staff. And and in my opinion, they are, uh, you know, possibly more entitled to that communal understanding because they're, they're being exposed all the time, you know, we, you, whereas your average veteran will have deployed once, twice, you know, maybe half a dozen times if they were pretty busy. Uh, and not to take anything away from that, I certainly don't want to diminish people's service or the trauma that's come from that. But but I, I'd love to see the same platform raised for our ambulance and police and emergency yeah. department staff, correctional officers. That that this is their job day in day out for decades. You know, yeah, I think it's yeah, we need to recognise mm. the, the trauma of those occupations. When I re-listened to this episode of the podcast, I really loved when Dan was unpacking some of this stuff, um, that self-awareness, the ability to be able to look back and sort of see that in that time when he came back from Afghanistan, how he was feeling. Um, you know, you know, he said understimulated. Um, he talked a bit about ego. He talked a little bit about, you know, feeling lost and losing a sense of identity. Can you relate to that? Uh, is there anyone out there today that maybe you're in your job and maybe you've lost a sense of identity due to traumatic events? Um, maybe you're just not sure or disheartened or you're not sure where you want to be. And I think any of us can relate to that um, as a listener. Um, I think it was awesome when he was talking about police and ambulance um, and security officers. And he was sort of talking about how they're under immense pressure day in, day out in their jobs. We can't know what it's possibly like to do another job um, because we've never done it before. And I think it's really important to understand that in those jobs, there's so much high, um, you know, that PTSD, which is really important. Um, when Dan's saying he has a lot to talk about it, because he knows from lived experience. Uh, that was really awesome. I also thought it was super interesting when we were talking about borrowing from the day, and Dan's like, I borrowed from the year before. Um, you know, thinking about listening now, are you borrowing from the day before? Are you borrowing from the week before? Um, are you being bolstered on by other people uh, and not stopping. And I think sometimes we've got to just not stop. There's times when we've got to just grind it out. But there are times when we've got to reflect and think about what we're doing. And we've got to really think about, you know, what is actually holding us up there? What is actually keeping us from going to our job day in and day out? We also have to realize, is that internal or is that by our peers? And I think a lot of us get bolstered upon by our peers, by the people that we work with, other clinicians that are awesome, that keep us motivated and keep us on point. Um, but we also have to really look after ourselves. Maybe after Dan talking on this podcast, you've thought, man, I need to address some of these issues like burnout, or maybe I need to address some things like PTSD, or maybe there's some things I've seen that have affected me and I haven't really talked about it. So I really want to um, you know, create a space 
in the sense that we should be talking about this with our colleagues um, and we should really be um, realizing that that's a strength to talk about it and to work out what's made us think a certain ways or what's made us be resilient in certain ways. Um, and I really think um, that um, we should be doing this collectively, but also individually um, as clinicians. Also, you've got to find the right people to talk to it about. Remember that it's a strength to talk, not a weakness to talk about it. To show emotion is also a strength, not a weakness. Um, Dan, just think, I've got a couple more questions before we sort of getting close to closing. Um, dude, why is losing so important in life? Why is yeah, you know, I've just sort oh, of yeah, look, it's a great question. I think the and when I looked at this, I've, I've written down some notes, but I mean, I, I put down it's the yin to your yang. Like, I mean, how do you know when something's good if you haven't got bad to compare it to? And yeah. and as you mentioned, having spent some time in the third world is a and, and for me as well, that was a massive eye opener to how good we've got it here. It's like if you if, if, if all you're doing is succeeding and, and winning and progressing, then how can you appreciate that unless you've got something else to compare it to that isn't that? Mm. And I guess the, the other thing that that got me thinking of is this the, the whole concept of losing. And, and I'm certainly not one of these people that subscribes to the every child player wins a prize type thing or for <laughs> it. Because the world keeps score. It's a reality. But 100%. I think, yeah. But but I think the, the, the other thing this made me think of was was mindsets. And and losing is a very fixed mindset sort of a concept. Either you win or you lose. It's binary. And yeah. and people will feel good about themselves if they win. They'll feel poorly about themselves if they lose. And mm-hmm. and I like the the growth mindset uh, sort of mentality where losing is just you, you haven't met the objective that you set out to meet and it's it's not this you know i'm a, I'm a failure i'm a loser this sucks i'm, I'm hopeless I'll, I'll never achieve it's it's well let's have a look at that and then mm. let's take what we can out of that and i think a great example i, I spent five years uh, between age 18 and 23 trying to make it as a professional triathlete and the reality is I, I i just wasn't good enough plain and simple was not good enough uh probably i was mentally a bit weak i was a bit of a quitter back in the day and so i mean in effect you know that that was a complete failure in terms of i set out to be a professional triathlete and i failed to accomplish my goal mm. however it set me up with a whole bunch of, of disciplined sort of training and that ability to to know where i could push myself physically uh it had set me up on a on a healthy pathway that through ages 18 to 23 i wasn't out drinking piss and and you know doing doing so i mean from a physical perspective it was great i I studied part-time while i was training and I, i did an exercise science degree and and did well at that and that set me up to get into medicine and and so while it was a it was a failure to achieve a significant life goal uh it's it, it was a, a great platform to then go on and, and do what i did and so yeah it's it's i think this idea of of, of losing and failure they're, they're pretty harsh words and and i think if you've got a fixed mindset they're very devastating but if you've got this growth mindset it's like well you know i couldn't accomplish this but what, what are the good bits i can pull from that and how can i use that to to move in a different direction and set a new goal move towards that and see how you go I love it, Dan. It's awesome because it's not because you know to, you can because you can win, and some people feel like a failure. What they feel like, but I like the sense that it's an objective. Like when you fail, something because you didn't meet the objective, and you just go and do it again, or you go and reevaluate that same objective and think, can I do it better? What did I learn from that loss? What did I learn from 
the mistakes I made. Um, not, not, you know, I'm so bad. I'm never going to be anything. It's changing that mindset. It's like, no, I can do this. It's, I think that's important. Um, I guess from that, Dan, tell me about something that other people value that you don't. Yeah. With that one, I've got to go with the news. So it it sort of, I know it comes off sounding quite ignorant, but I, I don't watch the news and I don't keep up with world events and, the reason for that is it's always so profoundly negative. It's, it's sort of these, you know, these this horrible story after horrible story of, of and of course I'm, I'm globally aware of, of what's going on around me. You can't yeah. not be, but, but to sit there for a couple of hours a day watching the, the things unfold in, in mm-hmm. Ukraine or watching the, the, the floods demolishing uh, Southeast Queensland and Northern New South Wales is, is it, it's, it's something that I, I choose not to spend my time uh, sort of digesting and processing because I, yeah. I think that's, and I know that sounds horrible. It's not to diminish the experience yeah. of people in that environment, but it's, for me, it's about this, this locus of control and trying to focus on my energies on what I can actually positively influence. And mm. uh, like, you know, the whole Afghanistan situation when, when I was over there, in years gone by, I was, I was 100% invested in doing everything I could to try and positively influence that environment. Mm. But when we're, we're back out of there and then, you know, the Taliban just sort of rolled straight through and, and did their thing. And it, it was, of course, devastating. But for me, it was like, well, you know what? I, I can't influence that. So I'm mm. going to try to, to let go of that, that what would otherwise be very negative emotional energy focused at something that I have no ability to influence so if, if I can influence things I'm all in and I'm there but but I try not to kind of fuel myself with all this this negative information and, and I, I think the other trap with particularly medical folk or, or once again first responders is when you're hearing news articles about say for instance a car crash or a, a kid drowning or something or other we're all plumbed with with the the visual sort of memories yeah. of, of similar things and so we can go there we can drive a very real stress response you're just hearing something about someone that you know you had nothing to do with but it will cause you to to oftentimes trigger these these memories and visceral responses and drive this this anxiety slash stress response and and say yeah i I just steer clear of of news uh, unless i really need to know about it yeah on page 113 of your book the title was i got to like focus only on what you can control i really like that um it sort of really stuck out to me as like a big bold heading sometimes you read things but that one really just went whoa i like that idea of you know letting go of the things that you can't control but focusing on the things that you actually have a chance to control on that note, there's an awesome book that you've written. Um, Tell me about your book, Dan, and what led you to write this book? Yeah. So that project came out of, as I've mentioned a couple of times, that fallout of discharging from the military and this, this, what seemed like a paradoxical situation I found myself in where things were great on paper, but, but physically I I wasn't going so great. And psychologically I was, I was sort of, battling a little bit things were catching up with me and and that was was looking at you know as i've said a couple of times what was it that was was bolstering us when we were with the military that i had then lost when i got out of the military and how do i rebuild it and so i started to to delve into the literature on on resilience 
and stress and, and how it affects a human physically and psychologically. But more importantly, what causes resilience? What do we know from the literature causes us to be resilient? And from that, I wanted to know what can I be doing now to, to build myself back up as a, as a civilian, as a resilient human again? Because I know I'd, I knew I'd been there, mm. I'd somehow lost it. I just needed this roadmap to get back to that, that good place. And as I was going along that kind of pathway, I, I started to uh, joined forces with my brother uh, Ben, who was a ex-SAS officer. He ended up the commanding officer of the SAS regiment, and and had a, a deep interest in resilience and, and leadership. and And uh, and then his uh, now business partner, a bloke called Tim Curtis, once again senior SAS officer, who'd gotten out and run some multinational companies in the Middle East and done some quite exciting things. and And so the three of us started to basically build this model, pick it all apart, have regular chats about what resilience was and started to do a few presentations here and there. And, and then it just made sense that we would generate our own model, mm. uh, which we did. And that was the resilient shields. And, and then we, we wanted to validate it. So we got a, a federal government research grant, partnered up with the University of Western Australia, got this brilliant uh, uh, PhD uh, researcher, a psychologist by the name of Lise Notabart. And so she uh, helped us generate a survey and we've got a bunch of data. I think we were up around the, the 12,000 responses to this survey. And we've not only validated our model, but we've refined it. And so we, it was important for us to put science behind it. The survey allows us to quantify resilience, which we saw that was something that was was not well done in the, the contemporary, contemporary literature. And we wanted to put a number around this so that you could then baseline and then do interventions and re-quantify and, uh, and see if you've made a difference. And so this, this, is, this is the Resilient Shield project and the book was just basically um, just, just documenting this whole process and, and explaining our model and, and all the, the science behind it. So I think it's 250 odd references, but it's pulling together all that stuff, talking to some of our personal experience, uh, looking at there's a bunch of case studies from a, a wide range of people from you know elite level athletes, athletes to, yeah to to this that and the other and and looking at case studies in resilience and and the evidence behind it and what causes resilience across a whole bunch of different uh, layers is what we call it in the resilience shield model. And I love the little call, like you read a chapter, then you've got this call to action, and there's actually practical things you can do. And I think I love reading something that I can apply. You know, you can read knowledge and read about it, but then to apply it to yourself gives you that self-actualization or that self-reflection. I think I'll, that's what I'm loving about it. Yeah, that was very important. I mean, it, it was not that useful for us to just do a literature search and then just dump out this, you know, <laughs> science. It was, well, how do you operationalize this? What do we do? And and then also using that survey to, to baseline each individual, it allows you to tailor your resilience interventions. And so, you know, we look at resilience across the, well, mostly the four, what we call modifiable layers, which is your mind layer, your body layer, your social layer, and your professional layer. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we recognize everyone's going to be different. And so it's not a one size fits all, do these 10 things and you'll yeah. be resilient. Uh, it's yeah. like, well, do the survey, look at where, you, where you're strong and where you've got areas for improvement and then focus on those areas of improvement. And, and you know, in the different chapters of the book, it's like here's, here's half a dozen things you might consider to improve your social layer or your body layer, mind layer, whatever you need to, 
uh, focus on because we're all busy. We don't have, you know, none of us, I don't think you've got five hours a day to focus on everything. No. So this allows you to just, for the time poor, hone in on, on where the best bang for your buck is. Sweet. Dan, how do people find the book? How do they contact or find you in terms of following what you're doing, mate? So the uh, resilientshield.com is our website. And so if people want to have a look at the, the survey, it's linked through there. You can do that and get your own resilience scores. The book's available uh, through that website. You can buy it there. We've also got a resilience journal and we've got T-shirts and hats and I think coffee mugs or something. There's other, <laughs> other merchandise. Otherwise, it's available through your Amazons and your Booktopias and Audible uh, in uh, audiobook format, the Resilience yep. Shields there and, and ebook. And so anywhere you, you find it. Uh, uh, bookstores, uh, hard copy, you'll, you'll find it there. And in terms of finding me, uh, yeah. so social media, Instagram or uh, LinkedIn, it's probably the best place to get a hold of me or through the, the website that you can contact us through the resilientshield.com. Awesome. And for any people that are wanting to get into the military, nursing, medicine, medic work, um, or any resources out there, what would you recommend? Yeah, that can be a bit of a tough one. And I, I have a lot of people contact me via social media and I, I desperately try to keep up with all of that. Sometimes <laughs> I, I fail a little bit. I apologise oh. for that, but I do try. The um, It can be tough because some of the information, particularly through recruiting, can yeah. be a little bit uh, incomplete or or inaccurate. I'm sure everyone's doing their best, but it's, it's um, yeah, sometimes you get a misconception of, of what the job might be but my advice would be i mean they're absolutely brilliant roles for the right people would be yeah. the, the caveat i'd put on that and and my advice is is do your homework like and i'm sure most would but but reach out you know do reach out to me i'll, I'll do my best to to get back to you if i can but really explore what the role is what you're getting yourself into uh, you know maybe get along to your local military reserve unit army navy air force whatever it might be I, I think they're generally pretty happy to to have people along to have a bit of a chat get a bit of an insight but yeah just just get a feel for what you're signing up for and and um yeah like i said for for the right person brilliant career for for someone kind of coming in with with those misconceptions that it's all about um all about gunfighting and, and treating sort of arterial wounds at the point of injury it's 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 not that at all you know i mean that's a very small part of it that that happens occasionally mm -hmm. but um yeah it is it's great role but it, it has its limitations as well and so it's about doing your homework and and for people who are as motivated to be a part of the military as they are to pursue their their medic nursing or, or doctoring it's great yeah. uh, but if you yeah if you're going in there thinking that it's all going to be swinging out of helicopters and gunfighting, you might find yourself a little bit disappointed with yeah. the role. Dan, it's been a pleasure talking to you, bro. I appreciate your time. Uh, I know you're busy. And also some really cool points in the book, even your link back to your family, I thought, thought was quite good. Um, I'm at the moment where I've been running for 71 days and I read about over-exercising, overdoing it with exercise, page 153. I was like, oh, I better be careful here, Dan. He's talking to me. Um, <laughs> But um, no, I think with any of that, it's it's about you know if you've got a if you've got a goal, a short term goal, it's you, you flex towards that, and you need yeah. to focus on that. That has to come at the cost of of something else. And so you know it's great what you're doing, and and that's a fantastic 
goal to to be running you know 100 consecutive days that's huge i'd take my hat off to you that's magic but you need to recognize that you don't want to stretch that out to 200 300 400 and yeah. then you know, have, have your, your family suffer on account of it or your work suffer on account of it it's about these ebbs and flows and balancing it all out to achieve your goals but then at some point take stock and think well hey am i you know am i spending enough time with the kids am i you know yeah. looking, looking after my personal relationships professionally am i developing so yeah it's it's a it's a dynamic thing this resilience and it's about taking stock and rebalancing as you go along i love it um i yeah i love it man and everyone you should get a copy i'll put a link in the show notes to um to the book to the resilience.com and to your instagram um dan thank you for your time dude yeah no worries ben appreciate it you once again, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening to the ED Jam podcast. Once again, thank you to Dr. Dan Pronk. What an absolute legend. Um, you can follow Dan's socials. I'll put them in the links uh, at the end of the show notes. Um, you can watch him on TV on SAS Australia. Um, he's a legend. I'm so grateful to talk to such amazing people. Um, you can also check his book out. I've got a copy of it. I recommend you buy it. It's epic. It's next level. I'm waiting through it now up to page 138, frothing on it. Um, so make sure you're reading it. Um, and once again, stay tuned to the EDGM podcast. Any advice on EDGM should not be taken over your local medical practitioner. You can find me on iTunes, Spotify, and also on my social media, um, EDGM underscore podcast. You have a good day.